0: the podcast begins we just want to let you know and apologize in advance that some of the audio is not great this is our first time doing a in-person interview uh, and the mic setup wasn't ideal Uh, we promise next time we'll get it right anyway enjoy the podcast and hello everybody. This is Der Mesrop uh, on our Saint John podcast. Um, I'm really excited because today we're going to be uh, exploring a new format in this year-long journey that we've had in terms of you know publishing audio recordings from our parish uh, for the past year. Primarily, with a few exceptions, we've been publishing uh, sermons that have been offered in different contexts. Um, throughout the year, uh, this year, primarily, we want to bring to you, um, new content that is going to be focused on specialized topics. And like today, I'm going to have special guests that will be able to sit down with me and explore those topics and bring us some new insight. Not only will we grow in our knowledge about these topics, but we'll also grow in, in knowledge of our faith and we'll also grow closer to Christ. Um, Today, I'm going to be discussing a topic which uh, I wrote about in our most recent parish newsletter, and that is mental health. As a parish priest, as a pastor, uh, as an individual, as an Armenian, uh, as a young man in the United States, uh, in all of these contexts, I've encountered um, challenges regarding mental health. Uh, it's something that touches each and every life. Um, however, uh, pastorally speaking, I've had the opportunity to try and reach out and be a resource to members of our community that are suffering from mental health-related issues, whether they're depression or anxiety, substance abuse, or other disorders. Uh, and one of the things that hurts me the most is the degree to which um, – people of all walks of life, not just members of our parish, but certainly people of all walks of life, uh, will avoid finding the help that they need in order to treat their particular illness. There are many reasons why this is the case, and I explored and addressed many of them in this article that was recently published. You can find it on our website as well. Um, But today I want to delve a little bit deeper into that topic, and in order to do that, I have with you uh, have here with me uh, an old friend of mine. His name is Anthony, um, Anthony Uh And I've known Anthony for many years. I've known him since he was a kid at our parish in Los Angeles, St. James Armenian Church. Uh, and he's now residing in San Francisco, where he's spent uh, the last several years pursuing a doctorate in psychology. Hi, Anthony. How are you doing? I'm
1: doing good. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, no, it's really a pleasure to have you here, and I'm excited to be able to talk to you about this. Um, Anthony is, uh, well, let me go to his bio here. He's completing a doctorate uh, in uh, psychology, clinical psychology. He got his MS in clinical psychology, and he's completing a doctorate. Um, at USF, and uh, he's got experience working with clients from various backgrounds who've encountered mental health and substance use disorders. Uh, he's working as a psychological trainee at Juvenile Hall nearby the church, right? No,
1: uh, in the East Bay.
0: Oh, in the East Bay. Okay. Uh, And providing psychotherapy for incarcerated youth. I think he's very talented at what he does, and he's very passionate and... Thank you for coming. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing good. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, this topic in general I'm pretty passionate about. Uh, It began, my passion for talking or even researching this topic began when I was doing my dissertation research. I went online and I looked up Armenian mental health topics. It's very limited. Right. Very limited out there.
0: Well, the the reason that I wanted you to to come on this podcast is last summer, Anthony volunteers at our our youth uh, camp, our uh, high camp program in the Sierras. And uh, he worked as a counselor. And at that time, I found out that he was doing research on a doctorate thesis that had particularly to do with Armenians and how they cope with mental disorders or... Uh, The stigma and how stigma affects them from secret mental health services in particular. Exactly the topic that we're discussing today. So please feel free to give us um, a little bit of background about... Why don't you just tell us what made you want to pursue psychology?
1: Um, I, th- I think this is a quite easy one for me, uh, because my father's a psychologist also, mm-hmm. and he has experience, uh, working for years with, uh, various populations as well, including Armenia going there and working with the survivors of, uh, the war that just happened recently. But, uh, mental health in particular, though, I've always been kind of driven to because it really has to do with something that's, like you said, it's kind of cloaked over in society. It's something that I- I'd like to dwell or dive into and understand more so about why do people act the way they act. And how can we help people that are suffering in life? How can we help them from their suffering and, mm-hmm, them that and mm-hmm. give them compassion and empathy for their situation? Mm-hmm. So that's probably the main reasons why I think I got into psychology.
0: That's that. great. I, th- I think you really have a true talent for it. A little factoid about Anthony. Anthony's uh, related to all of the Soroyans in our parish, one way or another, who yep. all are eventually related to William Soroyan. <laughs> okay. At some point, they right? Become. So he's part of a, a legendary clan. <laughs> <laughs> and who, he resided here, of course, you know, we William Saroyan, yeah. not too far away from the church. Have you looked into his history at all? I have a little
1: bit. He's over there in the uh, inner he used to live.
0: That's right. Or, have you seen the house? I have seen that. house. That's oh, yeah. cool. You, you mentioned uh, compassion. You mentioned uh, empathy. Mm-hmm. I think um, those uh, feelings, which are so important to the Christian experience, are um, are really key to us trying to unlock the emotional barriers to get to finding mental well being. Um, I I struggle when I see people um, who are suffering, particularly in the case of substance abuse. I mean, this is this is one of the most difficult, uh, I think, disorders to treat. But in depression and anxiety, when that help is just around the corner, if only they're willing to open up and speak to somebody about what they're what they're going through. And I, we're going to talk about treatment options. We're going to talk about how to overcome some of those uh, negative associations with treatment uh, a little later on. But perhaps we can just, I want us to have a clear idea of what are we talking about when we're talking about depression? Because I think many people are depressed, but when they think of depression, they think of other people. Yeah. So so what are we talking about when we're talking about depression? So
1: depression is an interesting topic because it really does affect more people than than people are aware of in general. Now, you can have symptoms of depression, and that doesn't necessarily mean you have a clinical major depressive disorder, yet having symptoms of depression are just as important to uh, understand and be aware of as much as having the disorder itself. Now, when people are depressed, I'll give you an example. Uh, When people are depressed, what happens is, uh, or experiencing depression, I should say, they have, it, it's hard for them to read other people's faces, right? Mm. It's not that they like empathy, but to really communicate people, you got to read their body language and their faces. Well, the face kind of similar to some of these plastic surgery, actually mm. kind of loses the muscle. Like a Botox the or Botox, something. Exactly. The, the muscle memory or the muscles in the face don't really move as much as they do when they're not depressed, for example. So what happens is it's hard for people to uh, socialize. So they end up isolate, removing themselves from these social events thus isolating themselves. Mm. Then when someone isolates himself, you know, we're social beings and it, it ends up making them more depressed mm. and thus creates the cycle of mm. them just st- staying more and more reserved to themselves, thus perpetuating the depression itself. So that's one way how a depression kind of works.
0: You know, uh, I've seen that so often in so many contexts. Somebody who wasn't uh, Average cyclist encounters a traumatic event in their life and they're depressed and now they don't cycle anymore. But the fact that they're not cycling is deepening their depression. Um, I see that often a lot in terms of the way that people engage with uh, the life of the church. They, uh, Whether because of uh, a traumatic event such as losing a loved one or losing a job uh Health related issues in their own life. They begin to suffer depression. They withdraw. Mm -hmm. They stop coming to church, a place where they can connect with and relate to people who not only share their faith, but also share their national cultural identity. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, they do what feels natural or maybe what I suppose they feel like they think they need to do in order to feel better or heal. And that is withdrawal and isolate themselves. And then it gets worse and getting them out of that um, cycle seems to be like a very difficult thing to do.
1: That's it. And
0: mean, you talk about losses,
1: for example, losses are one of those things where it really, it, we call it grievance in, in, in therapy and it, we don't consider that depression yet. It mimics all the symptoms of depression. And mm-hmm. essentially the idea is it does go away in time for grieving, but grieving does kind of resemble depending on your culture. our means. we have yeah. our own way of grieving, right. uh, as well as just, uh, the severity of it in general. So, uh,
0: and is it is it possible for and believe me, you know, within the, the life of the church, uh, we welcome and embrace bereavement. I think yeah. grief is a very healthy process. Um, I don't think although and I've experienced grief in my life, you know, I think that there are times when a person does need to be alone um, that that can't uh, become the norm. Mm-hmm. can grief become clinical depression it definitely
1: can in time if, if, if it lasts several months and it becomes really affecting their their life and their health their hygiene other factors of, them, of their life then it definitely can now you talked about one thing uh, about how they remove themselves you've had people remove this from biking from the church other activities that people enjoy doing in, in our field we call that word anhedonia and that's one of the key things of depression right there anhedonia has to do with that uh, removing yourself or not attending activities or participating activities that you previously enjoyed uh, participating in. And by doing so, what happens is, let's say you love uh, biking, in that example you gave. People will stop biking, thus stop communicating with other bikers that they might have biked with, right? Thus, they lose their social network in that process. Church, maybe they enjoy going to church, but church has so many other parts of it other than the, the worship aspect. You get to see people that you, every Sunday, You got to uh, have uh, chat with people about the week. You got to talk about yourself to people. You got to kind of express yourself in the moment. And if you remove yourself from that, you're only further isolating yourself Mm -hmm. and and thus taking away activities that you used to enjoy also Mm -hmm. outside of church, too. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole cycle that really needs to be kind of caught early if you can.
0: Well, I'm going to come back to catching it. Well, along those lines, actually, you know, what are other symptoms that you think somebody could? identify in their own lives that would help them not self-diagnose, but begin to, you know, kind of accept that maybe they should speak to somebody about what they're feeling. I mean, is it, when, when do we cross the line from sadness to depression?
1: That's, that's a good point. So really in general, uh, the way we would do it in, in, in a clinical picture would be once it becomes so uh, prominent in your life and it becomes, it interferes with all aspects of your life or To a point where you actually have discomfort and it actually does have an impact in your life. That's when you want to be aware of it. Now, you can have sadness, but if it if it affects your work, though, for example, Mm -hmm. you can't go to work. Or if you're having sadness, you're not talking to anyone anymore. Mm -hmm. You avoid people because you are so fearful of losing someone else or other aspects of that. I see. That's when it becomes uh, something that you work on. So the
0: rule of thumb is when it begins to alter your life. Yeah then you may be veering into uh, serious depression. Exactly. Right, Which then can compound upon itself. So whereas you could stop it at the beginning of the process and somehow find um, an easier method of treatment, if you don't address it earlier on, mm-hmm. then you only go deeper into depression and you become more isolated, it becomes harder for you to ask for help, and then the treatment process, I imagine, becomes more... Complicated, I don't know. Um,
1: well, the first part, uh, yes, but yeah. the second part, treatment, it depends on the individual. I want right. to put that also. Some individuals are really can have that resilient moment where they just recover with very little support and therapy, or some individuals might need more support, and that's okay too. It depends really on your background and your kind of experiences with reaching out for support. Mm-hmm. So, that I would say that's
0: kind of okay. So, it's not fair to make any generalization about one particular form of treatment is going to. Or one particular circumstance is going to respond to this treatment or that. But I think that from the church's perspective, one difficulty that I, I often encounter is um, when somebody identifies, maybe they haven't gone so far as to say that they're depressed, but when they are willing to admit that they're experiencing an above average uh, sense of um, disquiet, spiritual, mental, emotional disquiet, they're call it extreme sadness, something like this, when they're in this mode, they feel as though that uh, going to church and praying should be the full extent to treat what it is that they're experiencing. As a pastor, you know, this becomes um, complicated for me because, you know, one thing we always have to remember as Christians, as Orthodox Christians, is we always have to provide the opportunity for divine healing. This is important. We have, um, collective prayer, individual prayer when, and including praying for ourselves as well as for others. And we put faith in Christ, uh, to provide opportunities for healing, um, in all aspects of our lives. Um, but I think it's always important to remind people that the opportunities for healing that Christ provides come sometimes in the form of medicine that, in this case, looks like therapy or looks like psychiatric treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no uh, admitting defeat in these circumstances. But also, one thing doesn't replace the other, right? I mean, so that isn't fair to say that, okay, because now I'm seeing a therapist, I don't need to go to church. Because church is there to address our spiritual needs, which is not the role of a counselor or a therapist. Um, I I would think that's always very important to to remind people. I agree with that.
1: Uh, Spirituality is very helpful and essential almost, or is essential for mental health and for physical health. Physical health is important for mental health. It's all intertwined.
0: All three of those right. are really intertwined. Can you speak for a second about the physical component?
1: Yeah. Uh, let me give you an example. Diabetes. Mm-hmm. Right? That's one big one, actually, in particular. That one has a huge, huge correlation and connection to uh, depression, right? Actually, adverse childhood experiences in particular. That can, if that's non-resolved, that really has an even higher correlation to, to depression, overeating, Smoking cigarettes, substance use it's all. So clear. those things are symbiotic. They're all. So you've yeah, had
0: exactly. traumatic, traumatic uh, experiences or as you, a child, yeah, and even, so you're yeah. more like adverse. What's what would you qualify uh, as an adverse? Thing? Uh,
1: it could be so, like having a parent who suffered from alcoholism, for example. Okay. Uh, it could be having a uh, growing up with little food in your household. Mm-hmm. Issues like that—that that was adverse to your childhood. I see. And most people have roughly three, I would say, uh, in their life in their childhood. That's, you know, from a huge range of... The things. average person, yeah, you're yeah, saying? Exactly. But five and more usually is if you have... Really? like, Essentially, if you have, you know, more than half a dozen, that puts you at higher risk for, say, mm. depression or smoke cigarettes or substance use
0: and so on and so on. Mm. And, and along those lines, let's say, if you are then more uh, apt to or more, I guess, statistically more likely to become somebody who abuses his substances like alcohol or drugs, then it's more likely that you would be depressed.
1: Yeah. It's all, so substance abuse in general, I'll talk about that uh, briefly. It's connected. It's always something behind it. And same with like, if they have substance abuse, for example, I'm not saying they have depression per se, but they could have symptoms of depression. They could have PTSD in their background. They could have anxiety in their background. Mm -hmm. They could have something that may have triggered the substance use. The substance use itself, though, on the other hand, could trigger the depression. Mm -hmm. So let's say they have no background before the substance use, and they just got uh, caught in a cycle with that. That can trigger, though, the depression, the isolation from family, because maybe family members maybe separate themselves from the individual using the substance. And it can lead to the depression for the individual after mm-hmm. because they don't have that connection anymore. Of course. And so it's all, it's all connected. And self-perpetuating. It exactly.
0: becomes, uh, just to take a second here again and provide a reflection from a pastoral perspective. Um, and also personally, because I've had people in my family life who has all, have been substance abusers. Many of us have. Um, but again, as a pastor, I've been called to, um, serve people who are dealing with substance abuse. And so I know that if you're dealing with substance abuse right now or somebody in your family is, it is uh, an extremely traumatic experience. Um, It's exhausting. It is disheartening. It can lead to all sorts of uh, negative repercussions in your own life, assuming you're not the one who's a substance abuser. Um, It can lead to uh, your own sense of despair. It can lead to I'm sure physical conditions is what you're going to be. You're going to start to maybe be uh, more likely to suffer from depression because of this uh, experience that you're having. Um, so I think somebody who has suffered from this experience myself and has worked with people who are suffering from this, I want to say one important thing that you can get from the church is the support that you need to engage in this process. you're going to deal with coming and being a part of the church gives you the opportunity to um, commiserate with other people, to share, um, to provide, give them the opportunity to bring compassion and empathy into your life, to hear what it is that you're dealing with, to encourage you, to pray for you so that you can be strong enough to do what it is that you need to do. Now, I, going back to the substance abuse issue, can, can, Like just like we did for depression, how do we identify substance abuse? Where does one beer a night turn into alcoholism? So there's
1: there's two types of substance users. There's the kind that do it, uh, you know, in public and they will do it throughout the day and they're, you know, you see that they do it. It's called the I think I I might be wrong. It's called the blue collar substance user, and I think the white collar one. I think is the other one that do it at nighttime and after work they do it in their own apartment, their own house, and they don't really no one ever knows that they're using substances, but. They actually have a really heavy substance use issue. Mm-hmm. Now, you'd never assume like the CEO of this and that is a substance uh, use disorder, yet they're using, let's say, cocaine every day, you know, at mm-hmm. the point of addiction. Uh, what becomes problematic is when your peers uh, start being influenced or having negative reactions to you. Let's say that you're borrowing money all the time from people and not repaying them. Uh, uh, when you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is have a drink because if you don't have a drink, you'll get sick. Uh, that whole kind of thing of, uh, mm. of withdrawal. So if you start having withdrawal symptoms, that's one thing you right. can tell if you're having it. Alcoholism in particular, I want to mention though, is probably one of the most dangerous substances you can ever have because uh, mo- most deaths come from, uh, withdrawals come from
0: alcoholism. Now, people, Death from withdrawal? Yeah,
1: so more than heroin, more than any other drug like yeah. that is wow. because once you're truly addicted to alcohol, what happens your body needs to have that alcohol. If it doesn't have it, your body gets a shock and you have a seizure. I forget the type of seizure you have, but there's a seizure you mm-hmm. get. And that's what happens. And it's really delirium tremens tremens. I like if you have cold turkey off uh, alcohol, it's very dangerous also. So be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Nature,
0: but, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I guess let's take for a second talking about alcoholism because it is such a, a common uh, condition that people suffer from. I think that people... Struggle with first of all admitting that they have a problem, that that they're drinking too much and that it's beginning to affect their lives. Uh, I think that they rationalize their substance abuse by saying that they're self medicating, they're dealing with stressors. Uh, I'm sure many substance abuse issues stem from that, um, but I think particularly alcohol because of its availability and its social acceptability. What does a person need to do to be able to get over that hurdle of uh, this isn't this isn't an acceptable way to be living? Yeah,
1: Well, you, you can identify where the individual's at for their uh, desire to change by mm-hmm. their change talk. It's one thing we use called motivational interviewing, and it's a quite basic kind of approach you use. And it's really kind of identifying where the individual is. If they are ambivalent about their need to change or if they're in the pre-contemplation mm-hmm. stage of change, and that's where you can really kind of help them with their mm-hmm. – it's all about doing a tango with the individual. Mm-hmm. You don't you go up to them and say, you got to stop doing this. You, you, know, you don't do the brick wall on their face, essentially. you got to understand where they're at and meet them where they're at. And kind of from a kind of humanistic kind of standpoint, that's what I would do and kind of uh, get them the opportunity to reflect on their life and their, and their decisions and, you know, reflect their, uh, their statements that they say to you, give them open ended questions, kind of do that approach to really help them
0: come to, terms of their own addiction and be aware of it. Uh, So that's really one of the most difficult things that I think uh, somebody who has a loved one who's dealing with substance abuse to deal with, because this is where you're trying to bring compassion and empathy to the table Mm -hmm. while the substance abuser is killing themselves, Perhaps also seriously affecting your own life, likely also seriously affecting your life in both material and emotional ways. And maybe they're not at that point. Probably often they're not at that point where they're willing to uh, be motivated.
1: Stability, I think I, I want
0: to add that to you. Just being a stable
1: factor with your own boundaries with the individual you know, you always, you, you always want to love them, but you want to keep your boundaries mm-hmm. also with how you've given. Mm-hmm. You know, always be, if they ever want to come back, you know, give them that opportunity. That's what the church does, for example, mm-hmm. right? It's a stable force that allows you to come back. Even of if, course. So if you relapse, for example, it's okay. You know, come back when you're ready. You know, mm-hmm. come back. So mm-hmm. it's a non-judgmental approach. It's probably the key to being non-judgmental. Uh, alcohol in general, uh, I want to mention a little bit about that background too. The chemical, the main chemical we use in it is called GABA, which is anxiety. Right? Mm-hmm. So, what it does is it increases your gap in chemical, which lowers your anxiety. So, it's kind of like, so, if someone has anxiety uh, disorder, for example, a generalized anxiety, they might be more prone to using alcohol to cope with that. So, it's like a self medication, medicated approach. Same like they would use a benzodiazepine, like Xanax, or any other kind of pill like that. So, they have kind of two of the same things going on. So. Uh, it, I think we'll talk about uh, something, yeah. but prescription medication. Is else.
0: Yeah, I wanted to go into that next because probably, I mean, I don't know the statistics, you do, yeah. but I would say after alcohol, prescription medication is probably the next most common form of substance abuse, right. and which I imagine some of us have had to deal with as well, listening.
1: That's one of them. When I worked, uh, I used to work with uh, elderly uh, patients who lived uh, in, uh, in the Tenderloin District in particular, actually, and when I visit their uh, houses, I'd see prescription medication everywhere—be opioid medications, benzodiazepine medication—and grant they needed it for their health. Right, these
0: were—they were getting these from doctors. they were getting from
1: doctors, but they weren't really fully aware of the extent they had on their body. The, the repercussions of taking more than one pill, let's say. So sometimes they do a thing they call chipping in, where they take instead of one, they take three uh, mm. uh, hydrocodones, for example. Right, so they'd be you know essentially high because it's an opioid-based pill at the end of the day and not being aware that they are high in that sense and not under the awareness of that prescription medication still is a drug but it's it's tamed though and it's it's being surveillance you know and that's in the sense of how much you have it's kind of organized in that sense mm-hmm. it's cleaner mm-hmm. than the street drug but at the end of the day it still has the same effects as a drug if abused
0: so when you say it has the same effects of a drug when it's being abused i mean are you talking about a physical repercussions of abuse oh yeah, say. let me give us an example. Somebody who's abusing um, prescription medication, what's happening to them? So there are they're
1: chemicals in their brain, I, I'm not too much. Uh, I know you, you don't
0: yeah. have to name chemicals for okay. us, but what would the experience look like?
1: Uh, let's say someone's using uh, Xanax mm-hmm. right, and taking more than they do. Essentially, it's like that they're uh, blacked out, essentially. Honestly, it's like <laughs> imagine having a, a lot of drinks at once. Mm-hmm. That's, if you have like more than one or two or more than two Xanax, let's say it Has the effects of blacking out. Let's
0: Meaning say, they're awake, but they're know, awake, but
1: they're consciously not aware yeah. of what's happening. Yeah. it's you could do a lot of dangerous things with sure. That. I'm so, sure. Yeah, uh, I, with, uh, opioids, opioid mm-hmm. based, anything with the word cona co- uh, there or hydrocodone. Yeah, anything with then is an opioid based. Mm-hmm. In the case of oxycodone, uh, hydrocodone, stuff like that. What one big thing why like, people use heroin. Is because they have insurance for this medication, and they're not aware that this medication is one of the most addicting medications mm-hmm. you can get. And they run out of their insurance, or, they, or their insurance won't pay for the medication anymore. And you know, heroin, for example, is a lot cheaper mm-hmm. than prescription medication. Therefore, people turn to that. That's one of the main reasons why people turn right. that drug. So it's all connected. So
0: that that gets them the high that they need. But ultimately, um, I guess, like uh, besides decreasing tolerance, mm-hmm. right? So you need more over time, like any uh, uh, substance that can be abused, uh-huh. right? The more you use it over time, you need more in order to have the same experience. Um, aside from that decreasing sensitivity and the risk that you place yourself in uh, by constantly kind of being not fully conscious mm-hmm. or uh, be able to use your faculties. What else has happened? Is it is it destroying your liver? Is it... Um, hurting your brain is it yeah, decreasing all, your lifespan I, I mean what's happening
1: pretty much it depends on the pill but all, or all the or the prescription but pretty much everything you just said it mm-hmm. has an effect on all
0: of that mm-hmm.
1: it really can have an effect um i want to talk about uh chronic pain though yeah you. that's yeah. one thing in general um,
0: there's a reason people are on these meds um, right a
1: total reason so it's not that if you're on the medication it's a bad thing i mean if you're prescribed it, there might be a reason or it probably is a reason why you prescribe the medication now my i have a classmate of mine who's a chronic pain specialist and he always tells me about uh, living with your pain and kind of go coping or going to terms with living with your pain. Because a lot of times, what happens is we have anxiety about having anxiety, or we have anxiety about having the pain, right? Mm-hmm. Which leads us to take the medication more or more frequently than we would have done before, because we just don't want to even think about having that pain. So once you start having any inkling of pain, it becomes way more severe in your mind mm-hmm. in the future. Then it really might be, right? Because pain is subjective at some degree. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have pain, but you've kind of conditioned yourself now. Any little so pain. So when else, you feel
0: this pain, then you have to take this pill. Yeah,
1: so that's exactly what happens. So kind of come into terms with that and understanding that you will have pain. And if it's chronic pain, for example, compared to acute pain, which is short term, mm-hmm. if it's chronic, it's something you're going to have to live with. Right. And there's a way you can live with it and still be happy. Yeah, right. and, and have a,
0: have I mean, and I know people that have suffered from chronic pain, there's no diminishing that experience, right? Yeah. I mean, it's debilitating, yeah. and it affects every aspect of your waking life. Mm-hmm. So we certainly can't um, devalue what it is you're doing. Uh, but on the other hand, finding yourself in a substance abuse scenario is only worsening the possibility that you'll recover or find a better way to live, right? I want to bring it back to the role that our faith can play in these types of scenarios. Our faith is often there to uh, bolster us in just these types of situations where we feel as though the body is weak, right? The, the, the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. When we don't feel as though we have the energy, when we don't have the capacity to be able to continue to persevere throughout a situation like this, such as chronic pain, our faith is there through prayer, through worship, um, through fellowship to be able to uh, give us the strength to walk that long walk. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody that's listening to this and they're saying, well, it's all well and good what they're saying, but they don't have to feel what I'm feeling, right? Uh, but I think ideally the church, as, as you said earlier, Anthony, is that place where you come and it's like, we're going to try to feel what you're feeling, right? Even though maybe we can't get all the way there, we want to have compassion, we want to understand your suffering, and we want to help you somehow try to alleviate it. Now, if you're suffering from a prescription drug uh, abuse... Um, what what are your treatment options? I mean, do you go into uh, rehab? And yeah, what there's a lot of Options
1: you can do. You can do an outpatient, for example. Like you know, you alcoholic and or Alcoholics Anonymous. There's also uh, Narcotics Anonymous. There's dual right. uh, diagnosis recovery uh, Anonymous, where you can have a mental health condition with the substance abuse and be in an anonymous group for that. There's a lot right. of groups like that. There's also rehab centers uh, where they speci- have speci- uh, They can specify in opioids, for example. They can specify right. in Uh, heroin or any any kind of topic in general they have those kind of settings Uh, as well as you can go to individual psychotherapy or group therapy group therapy is is extremely effective actually with substance abuse because you see people just like you experiencing the same thing and
0: it's it's often more affordable Mm -hmm. right than other options yeah um it just occurred to me that like a situation where somebody finds themselves addicted to opioids because of chronic pain, like treatment for their addiction is made all the more complicated by their condition already. Right. Um, by, by the pain that they're experiencing, whatever physical maladies they have. So, again, this is just a way of saying it's not in any way an easy hill to climb. Um, But there are resources that are available. Right. And if you've never participated in individual therapy or group therapy um, or any of the other options that Anthony mentioned, it's worth a try and it's worth multiple tries. Right. I mean, if the first time or the first group that you end up in isn't the right one for you, there are other places available. I know that there's a place here in the city called SFPRG. Um, which is a subsidized program that offers affordable mental health services, uh, you know, for people. Um, and they'll keep working with you until you find somebody that's a good match. Um, I want to just, we could probably talk about addiction for a very long time. Uh, it's, it's such a huge issue, but I want to move on to uh, something that you said a little bit earlier. And that's anxiety, mm-hmm. right? Anxiety is something distinct from depression, distinct from, um, substance abuse, but it also overlaps often, right? How, how would a person know that they had clinical anxiety versus just kind of a general sense of nervousness or anxiousness about their life?
1: So you can have symptoms of anxiety, like you were saying, does it mean you have generalized anxiety disorder or social anxiety? There's various types of anxieties. A phobia, for example, all a phobia means is a specific anxiety. So if you have anxiety of heights, Right and That would be uh, fear uh, phobia of heights, but if you have anxiety of heights and ca- and driving in cars and swimming and multiple things, that would be generalized anxiety because it's generalized in different locations. Social anxiety is uh, when you're in social settings and not want to communicate with people right so uh, essentially kind of like every disorder when it becomes so it comes to the point where it affects your daily life where you're not you know driving in your car to go to work anymore or you're not. Mm-hmm you're kind of becoming inclusive because of that, or you're uh, not participating in events that your friends are participating mm-hmm. in. Uh, you're uh, overeating. That's one for depression. Anxiety can happen, right? Where you overeat or mm-hmm. undereat. Uh, that could happen also for uh, anorexia is connected to anxiety. Really? It's a control type, type disorder, right?
0: Where you so want to control Anxiety. I mean, to paint kind of a broader picture of it, it's uh, I, I, there are, there are, Specific phobias, right? Yeah. But in a general sense, can you describe it as a sense of fear because you have a lack of control over any given situation?
1: I would, I would say uh, so. That would be part of it, at least. So okay, if, I don't want to generalize yeah, too but much. I mean, but yeah, be part me. of it. it depends on the on the individual, I guess. But worrying, uh, excessive worrying, uh, always thinking about things that are going to happen that may happen, but you don't know if they're really going to happen. You don't have the evidence either way. Uh, Topics like that in general, that mm-hmm. kind of is kind of what anxiety looks like. And then you start avoiding things, right? So exposure is one of the best ways to approach anxiety because if you want to, if there's a saying, I love this saying, it's by Carl Jung. And it's, if you resist, it persists. So anything mm-hmm. you resist persists one way or another. You might not, at the moment, it might not persist, but in the future, it's going to catch wow. up, kind of thing. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the way I, if you
0: feel the need to resist mm-hmm. it or to uh, avoid acknowledging it, then uh, it's going to become somehow, I mean, yeah. a greater issue in the future. That's probably broadly true. Mm-hmm. Maxim. I, I've heard that anxiety of a certain type can be common amongst our elders. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about this. <clears throat> if you're familiar with it, uh,
1: tell me a little more. You mean by that.
0: Well, I've, I've often heard that uh, senior citizens, uh, at a certain point, become more susceptible to anxiety. Um, And I can't say what I've certainly not being a psychologist can, can, can definitively say what the cause is, but I think it is attached to the sense of like things are less in, their control than they had been in the past whereas they had kind of direct influence over their financial circumstances over their day-to-day activities they could they could potentially decide to do whatever they wish but because of physical limitations or because of financial limitations uh, or social limitations they're now restricted in in what it is they can do um, on a day-to-day basis and and also kind of a general sense of of Worry um, for the immediate future, for the, the far future. So,
1: th- there's a th- one thing I, I, that drives us all, in my opinion, uh, is existential anxiety. Right? Mm-hmm. The fear of dying, the fear of mm-hmm. th- leaving the earth without accomplishing it, something, right? And the older you get, that kind of becomes more of a prominent topic, right? The existentialism, right? Think about was my life, did I have a meaningful life? Did I contribute? Did I uh, give back to the, the youth, essentially, right? It's a developmental stage the older you get. And that's one thing in general that can either drive you to you can, uh, succeed and have a, 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 a baptismal life, essentially, mm-hmm. or it can also be crippling you can be kind of a crippling feeling of, of of not control of your future not controlling of what's going to happen and and almost kind of be gave into that sometimes
0: is is existential anxiety like a philosophical concept or is this like it's, a clinical it, disorder it's not, a, disorder. It's not a, disorder, <laughs> but it's a it's a
1: therapeutic uh kind of thing we talk about i see that kind of drive it's one of the things that drives us i see
0: to, to, to do well i mean th- we're certainly you know as christians and as armenians no strangers to that experience um as you said, I think uh, all of mankind has a relationship with as essential anxiety. But certainly, our faith gives us answers to that struggle that are really valuable. Um, and I think often we forget that in engaging with that struggle, reassurance is very important. Often as a homilist, that is they like in the in the sermons that I prepare and I offer uh, in church on Sundays or through other like means, I'm repeating myself very often. I'm, I'm referring to the same sets of values that we hold there. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to have people better understand core concepts about our faith and salvation through Jesus Christ. Um, and how being Armenians, we have a very blessed and unique relationship with that salvation. Um, and I'm repeating myself. For my part, understanding that people are constantly dealing with this existential struggle and we need to remind ourselves that there are answers to these questions that sometimes we forget or we, we fail to acknowledge in, in the midst of that struggle. I think that as a church, that's an important aspect of our mission is simply to remind people you're afraid of uh dying without having lived a meaningful life that's a worthy fear but hey come on let's work on this together we can make sure that that's something you shouldn't have to be afraid of right um anything else that you want to say about anxiety yeah i think um having said what i just said about armenians and and our relationship with anxiety, it kind of would bring us to another point that I wanted to explore with you. And that's that the thing that really kind of drove me to reach out to you to begin with. And there are plenty of psychologists around that can talk about depression or substance abuse. But particularly over the past couple of years, you've been doing research for your dissertation, which is has an emphasis on uh, the stigma associated w- w- within the Armenian community about seeking help or treatment. So, I think that's something I'd really love to hear more from you about because I felt like when initially I spoke to you about this many months ago, Mm -hmm. my personal impression was I think people, regardless of their ethnic background, have a stigma about mental health disorders. I think it's natural that there be some sort of stigma associated with this because well, disorder is in the title and nobody wants to be outside of the norm, or at least it's, it should be expected that people would be slow to acknowledge these things in a public setting. Um, however, reflecting upon it more, I do feel like this sense of resistance sometimes. And as a pastor, when I, I try to advise people to seek help, I, I feel that there's, um, kind of a barrier there sometimes. And, and I think your research has showed that there is something perhaps uh, relevant to the Armenian or the Armenian-American experience to help inform us as to why we might be slower to, to seek help.
1: Yeah, I, I think you said it earlier about every culture does experience stigma. So I wanted to say that, too. That it's not just Armenians who experience stigma. However, Armenians experience it in their own unique Way, which is as their culture, right? Uh, we we resemble our stigma similar to other collectivistic cultures compared to individualistic. Collectivistic means really family oriented rather than individual oriented. Uh, my dissertation is still underway, so I, I right. I, 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 we're we're going
0: to qualify this that uh, it's not a completed yeah, dissertation, yeah. But, uh, but spoiler have, alerts are ahead.
1: But I've I've been uh, fairly uh, up to date with all the research on this topic. Uh, a couple reasons why I can list a couple reasons why mm-hmm. maybe our. Uh, are hesitant to seek services, right? Uh, some studies have shown that lack of cultural competency. So, and mental health. So maybe that the clinician isn't aware of what Armenians are. And then maybe they, cl- they cluster them with either Asian Americans or European Americans, but they're not unique to the Armenian experience. Uh, and their stories are not really understood or, to- or given an opportunity to be told, right? Because Armenians, we like to talk about our family tradition or family history because that's really influences what we do to this day. And if that's not given time and, and,
0: and uh, you want you want your clinician to be able to connect with that exactly. or somehow value that as much as you do. That's Otherwise, one. you're not connecting. Exactly. That's
1: one thing that maybe drives people away from uh, psychotherapy. Uh, understanding of what psychotherapy is, right? That's one thing for every culture. But our it has been shown that, that lack of understanding of what therapy is and what mental health issues are, like we're doing right now, we're promoting what they are. But if, for people that don't, don't listen to this podcast, for example, or, or not aware of what mental health issues are, they might not even seek out services. They might go to a, a, a medical doctor, for example, for uh, somatic pain. So anxiety, I'll go back to anxiety actually on this, uh, stomach aches, headaches, back pain, pains in general could be derivatives of physical pains, but a lot of times also, especially in our culture, in collectivistic culture, somatic symptoms show up for anxiety. So it's a lot easier to go to a doctor and say my stomach, my head hurts, for example, than say I'm having anxiety. Mm-hmm. And That's kind of how it presents a lot of times with I that. Another thing I've read in one article, uh, which this is a generalization about Armenians, but the idea of, pay, of paying someone for to give you advice kind of just contradicts our historical kind of uh, way of living in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't really make sense is one thing I've read about it. Now, that's not for every Armenian, of course. I don't want to overgeneralize generalize that. Uh,
0: You're saying that there are, there are some people who feel as though it would be wasteful to pay yeah. somebody to – Tell us how there's, there's often generally this sense that I'm going to go to a therapist and they're going to tell me how I need to change my life. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't think that's strictly an Armenian impression. I think people feel, feel about this probably right. across the board, but maybe just for a second, you can remind us that's not typically what a counselor is supposed to do. No. Right. What is a counselor supposed to? I mean, I know there's different methods, yeah. but what would somebody experience sitting down with a counselor? So, we'll come back to the dissertation in a yeah. second. So
1: actually, so counselor and, and psychotherapist are in right. tune itself. So someone that does counseling does that more problem solving with you, kind of kind of will guide you to what to do. Psychotherapy really makes you essentially kind of get to your own answer through support. We, we really dive into your past history and find out uh, really, what is the motive and the core kind of behind your issues? Counseling more so is kind of here now. Let's fix the topic right now, but it doesn't necessarily always go deeper into the the root cause. So mm-hmm. it might come up again still. So mm-hmm. that's where psychotherapy comes in more. I see. Is that yeah. okay?
0: So, uh, so in both cases, somebody would say, why am I going to go and pay somebody uh-huh. to tell me how to fix my problems? Mm-hmm. And the other case would be, why am I going to go pay somebody so they can tell me how I can? <laughs> Mm-hmm. understand myself better i guess would be a, a better way of explaining that yeah the,
1: uh, therapy. the last part you said so we're blind even me you everyone we're blind to parts of ourselves, right that the others see and you know it's all recipro- uh, reciprocative yeah, wrong word but it's all reflects on each other in that mm-hmm. sense right so mm-hmm. there's certain things that you're blind of that you are doing unconsciously subconsciously that other people are aware of and it might be maladaptive it might be causing problems in your life right, right? but I can help kind of make you sure, work it, Right. Yeah. That's all kind of how it goes.
0: Yeah. And yeah. I mean, as a priest, I, I, see that all the time. It's people are, are often blind to the main sins in their life. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, they walk around saying, well, I'm not lying. So I'm not stealing. So everything's fine. But typically that one thing that is really kind of uh preventing them from kind of the uh, true penitential experience is they're blind to it. Mm-hmm. Right. And that it's human nature, I suppose. So this is the same thing.
1: And the second or the first part of what you, your uh, question earlier too, I kind of like to get the analogy of uh, kind of like a gas valve, right? Imagine steam's building up, building up, building up and you're just you know, having a lot of stress, a lot of worries, whatever you're having therapy gives you the opportunity to kind of turn the valve and let some, some steam out. So you don't have that point where you kind of cross that line where you're uh, having maybe a mental disorder or whatever you're having. So it can also be preventative to get psychotherapy therapy. Also, if you feel like you're just having stress all the time uh, things in your life are not going the right way for you, let's say, if you mm-hmm. really want to find out what might be the cause of this, for example. So it, it allows you kind of mm-hmm. bench. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a simple, point. A simple whereas,
0: point. Whereas you might be worse off for not having this interaction with a oh. uh, psychotherapist, mm-hmm. um, you can prevent worse, uh, worse case of di- depression or yeah. anxiety.
1: And psychotherapy also, I should mention, if you see any uh, mental health professionals uh, professional confidentiality is is a core component of therapy also the things you can tell a therapist are things that maybe you would never even tell your family anyone maybe let's say because you're not ready to talk about that and that's where you can begin the uh, process of talking about certain topics that might be too painful to even discuss in public so that's kind of another uh, thing that Mm -hmm. we do is Mm -hmm. are there
0: well let's go back to your dissertation what's what's something else
1: uh, so uh, things that have led people to seek more therapy, I'll talk about now that a little bit in, mm-hmm. our, in our Armenian community, uh, those who are more acculturated to American culture. Now being more acculturated to American culture is not a good thing or a bad thing per se, but those who are more, uh, maybe second generation Armenians, third generation Armenians t- t- tend to be more willing to seek psychotherapy. And that might just be because of a familiarity with our culture. Like mm-hmm. how,
0: uh, They've been more culturally assimilated. As,
1: as essentially. Uh, Also, one thing that happens in our community also that studies have shown is uh, When mental health conditions are mild to to medium, let's say level People try to fix it within the family within the structure, but once they get so severe that you can't that the family can't Handle anymore. That's when they typically seek psychotherapy Mm -hmm. and one reason for this is because people uh, Let's say that you have a family of five and one person has depression well now let's say that family or, or that one person has depression, That whole family now is seen as the family that has depression in our community because mm. a very tight community mm. and our families in general. So it, people are, are fearful of letting that leak out because they don't want the whole family to get the reputation of the, of the mental disorder. Too.
0: I see. Yeah. I see. So much like a transitive property that if my daughter's depressed, then somehow I'm depressed or I'm the cause something of in that. In that right. Yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, Views of mental illness, you know, understanding of what it is. Again, like I said, uh, also someone that's sought services themselves. So if you have a friend, for example, that has seen you know, a clinician, mental health clinician, uh, having that in itself is one of the best protective factors you can have because it allows you to communicate with them or they can share their experience with you. And in and Armenians, we love, uh, word of mouth, right? That's how we communicate a lot. So once you have someone that's, uh, had the services, they can promote it and that's how it spreads that way. Mm-hmm. That's another way, uh, that Armenians
0: typically seek services. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, so going back to what you were just saying for a second, I, I think that was really interesting what you were talking about in terms of um, some Armenian families wanting to try to address uh, mental you know, illness within the family before somehow uh, publicly acknowledging it or seeking help. I, would, Are you suggesting that the act of... Uh, Finding a psychotherapist or seeing a psychiatrist somehow is some sort of tacit to public acknowledgement of their illness. So even if it's not something that everybody knows about, they won't take that step because it seems like they're going outside of the family unit.
1: Yeah. To some degree, I would say so. Okay.
0: And again, keeping it in the family is not a negative thing either,
1: but when it's something that does maybe require more assistance or more professional support, right.
0: that's one. When- yeah. I, you know, my, my initial impression is that that's a positive thing, right? I mean, I, I the alternative to that in terms of like um, I'm experiencing emotional problems, so I'm not going to turn to my family. I'm going to immediately speak to a stranger that I pay money to. I, I I'm, a little uncomfortable with that. I would prefer a scenario where, as a family, we try to address the issue at hand. Where I'm concerned is a general lack of sensitivity or knowledge about psychological issues and as much as it can cause more damage when we try to resolve an issue within the family, and the family's not only not helping, but maybe making it worse in some cases. So yeah. I think that makes the case for go ahead and address it in your family, but be proactive about educating yourself. Um, in terms of my my daughter comes to me and she's got a substance abuse issue, I'm not qualified to solve that. Uh, If it's a serious problem, I need to have her see a professional.
1: In in psychotherapists, uh, one of the things we do is we don't... The the point of therapy isn't to make you dependent also on therapy also. It's to really empower and give you insight and tools to be... uh, It's more of a strength-based approach. approach. That's the one I do, at least, where you give them the insight and tools to be out on their own now with this awareness of what they have and how to cope with it mm-hmm. on their own. So if the family has those tools within them, that's excellent. But if it's a topic like schizophrenia, maybe or subspecies, like you say that, and maybe the family might not have uh, the capability yeah. of coping with that. And schizophrenia, for example, would require medication typically, yeah. right? So if you're not going to get medication because you don't want that to be looked out, that would be slightly concerning, yeah. right?
0: So. And one thing that we just touched on a second ago that just kind of um, you know, uh, concerned me was this idea of transitive guilt. I don't know if this is something that you've come across in your research or something that you've studied generally on the topic of psychology, but a sense that if somebody in my family is depressed, then I feel responsible Mm -hmm. for it. Um, Or if I am depressed, I feel responsible for the damage I'm causing in my relationships or to my own life and yeah. and the role that that guilt plays in either spreading the condition or um, perpetuating the condition.
1: You can't, because then that individual might be uh, be aware of that also, that they feel guilt. <clears> they <throat> say that uh, you're my brother and I'm having a substance abuse disorder. Then you feel guilty about letting me feel that deep into it, even though you really had no influence in it. Then maybe I'm not going to even talk to you about it anymore because I don't want you to feel bad. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to protect you from my own issues and mm-hmm. that of starts mm-hmm. to cycle. And
0: so then like, they yeah. become more isolated. Exactly. Right. I mean, what can somebody do in that scenario? I think from, from, from a spiritual perspective, we have tools to deal with guilt, right? We have a, a process of penance. We have confession and forgiveness. And, and spiritually speaking, although it's probably one of the most complicated concepts to accept in the Christian faith, um, put a real kind of, uh bedrock belief in in divine forgiveness and that can help alleviate our guilt um but socially speaking how do we cope with that i mean is that uh does just kind of raising awareness help in this situation Uh,
1: awareness in general i mean that's just a not the same cliche but awareness is a huge thing in our community in particular just it's okay uh, if you're to, to experience mental health conditions right it's not a just because you have a mental health, health condition, as you mentioned, too, it's not, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you've done anything to deserve it also. It just may happen because of other factors in your environment or biologically it happened, right? So being aware of you know what you're experiencing and also how to support others that are going through through empathy, right? Support doesn't always have to be through finances. It doesn't have to be through uh really being with them 24-7. It could be also through just providing them with a stable foundation for Empathy, unconditional positive regard, like you mentioned, and just really kind of an open door policy for people that right. need your support.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, support, I think, is, is crucial, right? And and non-judgmental support. Yeah. And I I do think that this parish is is committed to providing that for people in these sorts of scenarios. You know, it's important to know that you have a place that you can come. Um, that you can be open about what it is that you're experiencing and not have to feel shamed for it. And um, that shame component is something that I personally, I really feel a lot of sympathy for. Um, there's some people that just... Opening up to anybody about what it is that they're suffering, regardless, frankly, of whether or not it's a mental illness, but opening up to anybody about suffering they're experiencing in their lives instills in them a sense of shame for burdening somebody yeah. else with their own problems. So which to is protect them, let's say. Right.
1: It ends up being more so, like a family system, for example, right? If one person <clears throat> is suffering from subspecies, let's say, or in general, if one person is suffering, the whole family really is experiencing something else, and right? right. The equilibrium is maybe a little off. Right. That's why it takes a village, right, sometimes. Right.
0: So. Interview. I think that's very important. Yeah. It's very important to know that as a community in the, in the, in the essential unit of the community, which is a family, that support has to be, they have to be prepared to offer that support. The community as a whole has to be able to, um, provide balance for that family when they've lost their equilibrium to, to help balance them out. Um, and that there's a larger system in place that's yeah. providing services to help treat these issues as well. I
1: want to talk about also just self-compassion for yeah. caregivers. I, mean, yeah. I know uh, that's a, for a different topic, let's say, but caregivers though, uh if you're ha- uh, having a partner or a loved one that is experiencing mental health conditions or symptoms uh, and you're feeling burnt out from helping them, that's okay. That's understandable. Mm-hmm. It happens. But don't, I don't want to sound preachy, but don't give, don't feel guilt about having that because that's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work that you're doing yeah. as a curator also. as the passion yourself. Absolutely. I
0: think that there's, a, um, not to to generalize our own yeah. culture, but I think there is an Armenian aspect to that experience. Yeah. Or for Armenians, they could relate to that feeling of ah. um, when I'm charged with the care of a loved one, regardless of the circumstance, um, including issues regarding mental wellness, um, I've got to be unshakable, mm-hmm. right? I've got to be, uh, uh invincible I've got to be uh, on a spot I, I'm not going to be able to I can't run out of steam and I'm going to see this thing all the way through to the end and when it, inevitably because we're all human beings and we all have our imperfections and, and limitations we, ex, we hit that wall it's a real sense of like shame and guilt and a sense of having failed and and not wanting to admit that to to yourself or others but it's a it's a real common experience right
1: Think about it this way: uh, on airplanes, right? Whenever they say, do they do uh, the test with the air that drops down for the oxygen mask, they would say put the mask on you first, uh, then the the child, for example, or someone next to you. Uh, if you don't take care of yourself first, or be aware, you know, at, at least take the effort to take care of yourself. You're not going to be as effective in helping the, the person that needs help as well, right? So don't neglect your own personal self care when you're helping someone.
0: What does self care look like?
1: Self care could be. Anything you enjoy doing—really, going to the gym, uh, being active, uh, getting coffee with your friends—anything that you've enjoyed doing, you know, you don't need to give it all up just to help, uh, right? Because when you help people, sometimes it's—it's very common. I used to work uh, again with the elderly population and caregivers. That all they would do, the caregiver would be with them all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And they didn't have a social life. They their diet ended up kind of going down. They stopped working out, and their own kind of physical health declined as a result. Mm-hmm. You've got to have time for yourself also. We all do that as humans, right? To have that time to be mindful and, and, and kind of allow ourselves to just be present. And,
0: and mm-hmm. in, in the um, in the Armenian Church, we talk about our Eucharist in a, a very unique way. We talk about the Eucharist, which is the sacrament that we celebrate on Sunday morning in terms of Badarak. Um And the translation of this is divine sacrifice mm-hmm. or holy sacrifice. Um, that's not common in churches to be able to refer to that sacrament in these terms, in terms of sacrifice. And I think that, you know, um, this and, and many other, uh, reasons have led us to really kind of glorify sacrifice and sacrifice, uh, for the sake of, Our family, for the sake of our community, for our nation, these are all really, this is, this is worthwhile behavior. But sacrifice in the concept, in the context of the Eucharist is, is not our own sacrifice that we're celebrating, but it's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're giving thanks for that sacrifice. Um, and I think that that embracing that concept is a, is a shift of perspective of, yes, we have to sacrifice. Um, but ultimately the source of Christ's sacrifice is love, right? And if we're not um, replenishing that love that we have in our life for ourselves as well as for others, then you know our sacrifice is, is not going is going to be in vain, essentially. Uh, so I think that's important. Self care is self love. You're created by God in God's image. You deserve um, care and attention and respect uh, as well.
1: Don't they say that about love? If you don't love yourself, you can't love others. Absolutely. Well,
0: the Bible says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So it's a caveat. Uh, Well, you know, I want to wrap it up here. It's been very interesting. Uh, I learned a lot speaking to you today, and I hope that uh, everyone listening, at least as a minimum, has a better understanding of what we're talking about when we're talking about some of the main mental health issues that our society is facing. And and I hope that you guys take with you um, a sense of motivation and inspiration to, if you need it, seek help, and feel free to begin at the church. Feel free to speak to, if you're not at this parish, to your own parish priest, uh, and confide in them that you, you're experiencing something, and they'll help you find the help that you need if you don't have anybody else to turn to. Um, but be emboldened, and certainly, what have you got to lose, right? What have you got to lose? There are many affordable options out there uh, to get the, the help that, that you may need.
1: And I want to mention there's one thing, uh, a hotline, for example. There's right. many hotlines out there. And there's one uh, at the Institute on Aging, for example, called the Friendship Line, right. which typically caters to elder adults. So right. if anyone wants to even try that, that's a good
0: I found some resources online. There are several local hotlines. Uh, we all know like the national suicide prevention hotline is available to us. And of course, that's very important for us to keep in mind that when you feel like these suicidal ideations, or you feel as though what you're suffering, something that uh, you can no longer deal with, that you have to reach out no matter how much you you want to isolate yourself. You deserve to, to be able to speak to somebody about what you're going through. There are a lot of local hotlines though, that are available. The one that, um, the one that Anthony just mentioned, as well as several others that I will be placing in the the notes of this podcast. Yeah, yeah appreciate you having me on here. Well, you know, I, I appreciate you coming, and kind of at short notice as well. Uh, we we wish you the best of luck in your career as a psychologist as you finish out this doctoral program. I think you're going to be fantastic. Our prayers are with you. God bless you and your family. You. Love the entire. Uh, The entire Sorin family. All right, thank you very much.